Go to your Bibles and turn with me to John in chapter 20. In John 20, there are Bibles at the back if you'd like to avail yourselves of those. And I'll pray before we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the privilege of holding your revelation in our hands. Help us to love it, cherish it, for it is indeed precious. It tells us of your plan of salvation. It tells us of your promises. Help us to trust you and obey you more. And Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our wonderful Saviour, the risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. So John 20, and we'll read some of the verses we read last week, but we'll read verses 11 to 23. John 20, 11 to 23. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? As she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy words. We did look at some of this last week, and I don't intend to redo it. It's just I thought it's very important to read it in context. Our focus is 19 to 23. We preached, I preached up to verse 18 last week. And you'll see that on the evening of the first day, it didn't strike me this until last week, on the evening of the first day of the week of that first Resurrection Sunday, Jesus' disciples were in lockdown. Did anyone ever notice that before? They were locked down. They were in lockdown. And it's true. And it wasn't because of the result of a government-ordered restriction, but they were, where on the, they were there on account of the fact that their hearts were filled with sadness. They'd apparently completely lost their way. And that darkness which had engulfed Mary as she had gone to the tomb early in the morning 
as we read earlier in the chapter, had now, in a kind of metaphorical sense, settled on the shoulders of the disciples. And as we read these words, we can see that this sense of lostness, darkness, is not, it's not something that can be dispelled by some illusory hopes. It's going to take something really special to see them change. It is clear whatever hopes, whatever aspirations, whatever dreams they had shared had been crushed, completely crushed. Their, their hope was gone. They locked the doors as a result of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They had already begun to speak in the past tense. Do you remember? Do you realise that? They began to speak in the past tense. One of their company had declared earlier in the day, referring to Jesus of Nazareth, and the hopes that they had concerning him by saying this, we had hoped, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. So that they had concluded that he was not. They had concluded he was not the one for surely no Messiah would have died. Such an ignominy, you know, such a death, nor been buried away from sight. So, with the wind completely gone out of their sails, they are essentially completely becalmed, going nowhere. That's how we find this group of disciples. In order to help us just work our way through the passage, I thought to gather our thoughts under three headings. I occasionally do this. It's not because I'm clever, but because it is simple. Fear, faith and forgiveness. Fear. And fear was the explanation for why the doors were locked where they were assembled. It was fear. They were fearful. They were fearful of the possibility that those who had crucified Jesus may in turn come and get them. And do the same to them. So they were, they were full of fear. They were full of fear. And how I would love it if so many who are full of fear would be replaced by being full of hope. Hope replacing fear. But why would they have assumed that this would be the case? This, I wondered that. This little huddled company, if they were a threat to anyone, is that they were a threat to themselves. They were of no threat to anyone as far as I can see. And as you read this scene, and it is a very familiar scene, just imagine with me just for a moment the mood, the atmosphere, the utter despair that must have been in that room. Maybe best encapsulated by the word empty. They were just devoid. They were probably devoid of feeling. Emptiness. And in moments of brutal honesty, we are forced to admit that with all of our best endeavours, ultimately we can't really do anything to help ourselves. We certainly can't create life out of death. We're unable to bring order out of chaos. I do not think it is difficult to imagine that the disciples on this particular evening were thinking something along similar lines. I'm sure, I don't think they were sitting there in silence. I think they were whining to each other. One of them might have said, 
Do you remember how excited and hopeful we were when he walked on the water? And then someone else might well have said, yes, but do you remember what a disaster it was when we began to take, tell those mothers to take their children away because we wanted him to have some peace? And he rebuked us and said, let the children come unto me. And you can imagine someone else then saying, well, surely you remember when we left him alone for a few minutes to have some lunch. And when he, we came back, he was seated with a woman at the well. What a day that turned out to be. I don't know, you could go with this, couldn't you? Someone else may well have said, you know what I remember, the tomb of Lazarus? I remember him coming up and seeing him weep. Remember he wept. And then in that reminiscence, the kind of, it wouldn't have been with hope, but it would have been, do you remember? There is this anguish that suddenly hits them, that they would never see him again. That they wouldn't see him again. Do you remember, do you remember... And then, boom, the awareness of the fact that they wouldn't see on earth his face again. Of that were they convinced. So they locked the doors. They were fearful. They were empty. There was this sense of gloom and emptiness. And there would have been inevitably regret. Surely it wouldn't have been long before the reminiscence, someone would have said, if only we had stayed with him. If only we had stayed with him. When they came from him. If only we had followed them. Well, why was it that we said, Jesus, you can count on us whatever happens. And then we ran away. And he died alone. There would have been regret in the room. Disappointment. Despair. Shame. They, they would have been ashamed. They would have been ashamed in those moments. Well, why are we able to even, if you like, speculate but sense some of that atmosphere? Well, I, might I suggest to you there are many reasons why, but at least this. Because in some sense, the atmosphere as I have just depicted it mirrors the condition of our world this afternoon. Empty. Despairing. Not much to look forward to. And in particular, after the last couple of years, the condition of many, maybe facing up to mortality for the first time, despair, lostness, emptiness, regret and fear. And we all do peer into an unknown future, don't we? We hope certain things won't happen, we hope certain things will happen. But humanly speaking, we all peer into an unknown future. And in moments of honesty, we are forced to admit, with all of our best endeavours, man has been shown unable to create life out of death. Man can't do it. We're unable to bring order out of chaos. So for us, as it was for the disciples, it's going to take something pretty special to see a change. That's, so that's the condition of the disciples. I suggest that they were fearful. They locked the doors. But then secondly, faith. If fear was what they experienced, faith is what it was to be restored. That's what faith restored. And John tells us that it was in that gloomy, empty circumstance 
that Jesus came and stood among them. I love kind of like, it's sort of like the anticlimactic way he says, Jesus came and stood among them. And although they were locked down, pardon the pun, Jesus could not be locked out. And that wonderfully is the truth. The reason they were locked down was that they believed that death had locked Jesus down. And then Jesus appears among them, stands among them, quietly. I love the Christmas carol, and I'm sure we'll sing it in the coming weeks when we have those lines. And we all go a little bit quiet, don't we? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And there is a sense, when you come to the resurrection, Jesus operates exactly the same way. How silently, how silently. And I'm, because if somebody was going to create a legend, by the way, resurrection had no place in their system of thinking. They weren't expecting a resurrection. People often think that, well, it's wish fulfillment. They weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. But if somebody was going to create a mythology along these lines, there wouldn't have been, he just stood among them. There'd have been banging of drums. There would have been boom. There'd have been fireworks. There'd have been ballyhooing and trumpets and various things going on. There would have been a big kerfuffle. But there is none of that. Have you noticed how undramatic the appearances of Jesus are in the Gospels? How quiet they are. Earlier in the chapter, when Jesus comes up behind Mary, and he simply speaks to her. He just speaks to her. And in the next chapter, we'll come to John 21, we see Jesus on a beach with a stick, poking a fire, and cooking a fish for breakfast. We find Jesus in the end of Luke coming across two very depressed individuals as they're walking down the road. And then here in this room, he who created the world, who was cradled in the manger, slipped quietly but livingly into the events of life. I, I like to think that he sneaked up on them speaking reverently, he, he, he sneaked up on them. He was there. And what is the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Peace. Shalom. Which is a customary Semitic greeting. But let's not quickly pass over it as a Semitic greeting. What a word to speak. What a word to speak. Because after all of this imagination, what do you think, if I was there, what do you think they anticipated would have come out of his mouth? Rebuke? Disappointment? Blame? Where were you? Why did you run away? Peace be with you, Jesus said. And when he, in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Because you see, Jesus realised just how startling this was. How frightened they would have been. Frightened, first of all, by the possibility of their own death but now frightened in a different way, that Jesus, who they were sure was dead, was alive and standing among them. Luke tells us they, they thought they'd seen a ghost. So far from the disciples, waiting around on Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday morning, waiting for the appearance of Jesus so they could have one massive celebration service, 
Nothing could be further from the truth. Fear had taken over. And so Jesus says to them in Luke 24, See my hands and feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And in verse 20 of our chapter, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Anybody who had been crucified routinely would have been identified by the wounds in their hands and in their feet. But in Christ's death, his side was pierced with a sword in order to bring about the indication that he was entirely gone, that he was really dead. The verifying move on the heart of the soldier. So he points to his hands and his side. And then I think it's one of the classic understatements of all time. It certainly is a masterful understatement. It just says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, <laughs> no kidding. They, yes, they were. But what I find of interest here, and I wonder if you follow along with this, Jesus here appeals to their senses. Again, far from the idea that the story of the resurrection is an idea. Or as some clerics have said, we talked about this this week, a trick with bones. That it is a concept. That it is a way that we get through life. That it is built on a forlorn hope, propped up by years of tradition. Nothing is further from the truth when you examine the evidence. The disciples are not entertain, entertaining anything of, of the sort. But they are embracing a person. And Jesus says to them, listen, you can touch me and you can see who and what I am. Appealing to their senses of hearing, of seeing, of touching. In one of the other Gospels, he eats some fish with them. Making it clear that his digestive system was working too. Why do we mention this? It's important to realise that when you and I read the Bible, we weren't there. We weren't present for the event. But when we read the record of the event, the Bible isn't asking us to believe anything that is contrary to sense. The events of the Bible may be super, super, supernatural, super rational, above rational reason, but the events of the Bible are not irrational, that's what I meant to say. They're not contrary to reason. So John, who wrote the Gospel, when he wrote his letter, began this way, 1 John 1 verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify it to it, and proclaim you the eternal life, which is with the Father, and was made manifest to us in the Son. This is the story of the resurrection. And once again, Jesus repeats that greeting, peace. Again, he says to them, verse 21, peace be with you. Are we right to see almost a differentiation between the first, shalom, and the second? It's surely a custom, customary greeting. But the disciples, remember, have been on the receiving end of the instruction of Jesus concerning peace. He had said to them, John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. John 14, 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And surely in this greeting, he's giving to them at least the initial inkling of the fact that their gladness would not be found simply in the awareness that Jesus was alive, but that by his resurrection, he comes to bestow the peace that comes through his shed blood on the cross. In other words, the peace with which he greets them is the peace that is bestowed upon the pardoned sinner. We sing sometimes, don't we? Sing, O sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt and made me free. And this is how Paul explains it when he writes to the Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Shalom then takes on a whole new meaning for those who discover this peace. This world this afternoon is largely indifferent about the things of God. It's largely indifferent. The world is largely indifferent to God as the creator. And a world that is, in our own tiny worlds, rebellious towards God. The world rejects the notion that he made us supremely for a relationship with himself. And a God who, despite the fact that we have turned our backs on him, that essentially we have said, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I can figure this out. Thank the Lord he has not left us alone. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. As the Saviour came behind Mary, as Jesus came upon them on the Emmaus Road, so the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you and me. He still seeks us out. He still pursues us in love. Luke 2 verse 14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you think about the cries for peace, ever since my childhood probably dates me, the cries of the 1960s for peace, the peace movement that started about then. But there was, it started with understandable longings, the Vietnam War, etc. Real longings, heartfelt longings for peace. And many of those who sang the songs, if they're alive now, 60 years on, are clear about one fact, that the shouting for it, the clamouring for it, the longing for it, has not created peace. We're, we're, you can't say we're more peaceful now than we were then. So the words of Jesus are clear, but they're compelling. In me, you may have peace. Do you ever long for peace? In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This is the gospel message. It is this message that holds the answer to our lack of peace. He is the only hope. Because the resurrection does not simply mean that there is a Jesus, there is a Christ who defeated death one day for a long time ago. But what it says is that Jesus is alive today. 
He is alive forever. And he is the only answer to our chaotic world. The only answer is Jesus. In him you will find peace. He is the only answer to the predicament of our individual lives. So they experienced the fear. There was faith that was restored. Not a result of an idea, but the result of the presence of Jesus in their midst, the risen Christ. And then the forgiveness that they were not only to experience, but to proclaim. Jesus came, he was on a mission. He made that clear from the beginning. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came to preach the good news. So it makes perfect sense that when he would be removed from his earthly pilgrimage to ascend to the Father, he would send his disciples on to continue his mission. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. These words are a challenge. They're a challenge for us. They're a challenge for those who go on mission, but they're a challenge for us to be faithful to the gospel. I have no desire to skip the challenges, but in light of them, I think it is safe for us to simply say this, that Jesus in saying this is sending them out to proclaim the way of forgiveness. If you forgive the sins of any, they have forgiven them. Well, clearly they didn't have in themselves the power of absolution. Jesus wasn't saying that. And if you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. It cannot be that. But Jesus is sending them out to preach the way of forgiveness. How could they take on such an assignment? Only in the power of the Spirit of God. And so here, in anticipation of what was to come, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. There is no way that we can do this on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. How did it work out? How did they do it? The best way to answer that is simply to fast forward a few weeks to find that Peter, along with others, begun, began to do exactly what Jesus told them to do. And in his first opportunity to preach a sermon, Peter, the one who denied the Lord three times, Peter, as recorded in that sermon in Acts, began it this way. Men of Israel, hear these words. And then his first word is, Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ is alive forever, to die no more. Christ is the decisive answer to the chaos of our broken world, to the predicament of our individual lives. So in other words, he directly addresses the situation that they face. Rebels, unfit for God's goodness, appealing to ideas of their own, and now the same God who punished his own son in our place, the sinner, comes now to make his appeal and to offer forgiveness in the preaching of one of Jesus' followers. 
when he comes back in another of his sermons, he says, Peter says, there is salvation, or if you like, forgiveness in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I say to you this afternoon that if you think that this is false, then I do not believe there is hope for humanity anywhere. Life after lockdown for these men, and I do believe that's what it is for us, as history records, meant going out and doing what he asked them to do, to proclaim this amazing truth, the good news, forgiveness, love of God, the story that we in Jesus are given to proclaim. They proclaimed it, they lived it, and they died for it. What about us? What about us? Are we really believing that the NHS and the scientists have the answers? Not simply to a virus, but to the answers that unsettle us on account of the virus. Our fears, our disappointments, our regrets. If only I could have my time over again. Or I remember when. Or wasn't it wonderful then? There is no answer there. Because there's, the answer is in only one. And the answer comes when we refuse to walk around saying, we can work it out on our own. I can sort this. I've got that. And instead cry, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. There was a cartoon last year, I think it was, I couldn't find it, of a goldfish bowl with two goldfish in it. I think it was in the mid mid middle of the pandemic. And one goldfish was saying to the other, what is our exit strategy? And then, but there you have the real answer, far bigger than the question, the real question, far bigger than the question what is going to happen? What is going to happen next with climate change or people, you know, extinction rebellion where people are gluing their faces to the road? What about the exit strategy when our lives come to an end? Because that is the question. That really is the question. And in the gospel, Jesus has the answer because he is the resurrection and the life. He really is. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked the, questions, the question which we all have to answer. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if not, let me ask you, what do you believe? And does what you believe ask that great big question? The question that has been thrown up for so many. What am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going? Does it answer your fears, your despair, your regret, your shame? The disciples after their lockdown, which was self-imposed, they went to tell the world what I now say to you, that Jesus has promised to save all those who trust in him. Tremendously simple, but we find it so hard to say. That if you are committed personally to him, for not simply believing that he is who he said he was,
But they're saying to him, Jesus Christ, you are clearly the friend of sinners. And I want you to be my friend. Because only in Jesus will we find rest. Only in Jesus will we find pardon. Only in Jesus will we find peace. And it may be that in this particular period of your life, this sense of the silent advancing of the risen Jesus, maybe it's been made sneakily apparent. Could have been a text message. Could it be a song from a grandchild. And in a way that you've never known, there's been a sense of your heart being moved. Your heart being stirred. You say, well, how would I ever know? The first sign of the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts to change it is that we trust Jesus as Saviour and King. And we can do that wherever we are. Because Jesus not only paid the penalty, but he is risen from the dead. So these last few weeks, in a way, we've walked through some things of his mock trial, the travesty of justice, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But it is true because we worship a risen Saviour. We worship Jesus who is alive to die no more. And my friend, we know that he has triumphed over death. It's not that he is going to win, he has won. He has triumphed over death. And that means we can genuinely say at the funeral of a loved one, who's trusted in Jesus. We know where they are. Because death and the grave and everything has holds us in its sway. And Jesus has won the victory. I read something very, very moving yesterday. It's about a dear brother whose name is Melvin Tinker. And he wrote a very good book about the West recently. And he was diagnosed with pan pancreatic cancer, I think about three or four weeks ago. And his son just posted on Friday that he is entering his last few days. The end came very much, 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 much quicker than any of them would understand. He was a minister in Hull. He took his church out of the Anglican Church, independent church he, 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 he led there. But his son posted something very, very poignant from a poem that meant a lot. You know, that final goodbye, that final handshake. And then that final letting go. And then that glorious hello. And that, that was very moving because that is the truth for those who love Jesus. It is that goodbye, but then it's that hello. And we will be made fully whole. So for those who trust in Jesus, there is that glorious hello. And why is that so? Because he is risen from the dead. May the Lord bless the word for his glory, but for our eternal good. Amen.